Good morning, everyone. If you're able, would you stand? We're going to worship together. But I just wanted to start with some scripture. And um, yeah, I was just thinking about how, how awesome it is that God is in the room. <laughs> I think sometimes we worship as if he is like somewhere else, like he is far off in the heavens and we're like down here like, please come down. But it says his spirit is in us. Like when we ask Jesus to be savior of our lives, his spirit is knit with our spirit. That's so powerful. I think it's so cool. He's in the room right now. The king of glory is in the room. And I was just reminded in Revelation 4, says in the four living creatures each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever The 20, <laughs> the 24 elders fall down before him. Who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. <laughs> saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I didn't expect to get this emotional this morning, but I just, wow, I just, yeah, he's here in the room, you guys, so we're going to worship from that place. When we worship, we're posturing ourselves before him. And this is how we do it. We, we don't just say the words. We sing them with our whole hearts, with our whole lives. This is just a continuation of our worship to him throughout the week, right? It doesn't stop here. This isn't the starting point. This is just a continuation of it. We don't come here to get filled up. That's throughout the entire week. He fills us up every single day, every moment. We have that option to choose him, to choose his word. So we're going to worship from that space. So God, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord. God, we thank you, King of glory, that you are here with us. God, that you are not far away. That we get to worship the God of the universe. The God who created all things. The God who breathed his breath into our lungs we get to to worship you our God right now here in this place among many others all across the earth that are worshiping you right now Lord we just join in with heaven singing to you
praise you this morning, God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you honor and glory and praise all to you. Lord, let this be um, the posture of our hearts as we go into this week. Lord, that we be sensitive to your spirit. We be sensitive to um, your voice, God, that we would stop. We would wait long enough to hear you. We would quiet ourselves long enough to hear you. 
God, we want to be people that follow you, that follow you wherever you go, that are obedient to your word. So we praise you, God. We thank you for your presence, God. We thank you for your perfect love. And we just bless your name, Jesus, this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sophie. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. A couple of things I want to let you know about before we dive in this morning. First is, for those of you who um, are part of a life group, many of you know that we've been doing dinner on Wednesday nights across the street. And this is for those of you who have a life group that you need to get to, those of you who have kids you want to drop off with our youth group or one of our children's life groups. But this is really just for us, regardless of whether or not you're in a life group on a Wednesday night. So I want to invite you to keep coming and joining us for our family dinners on Wednesdays from 6 to 7, whether or not you're in a life group. And if you are not currently in a life group and you want to get into one, you can just show up at 6 and stick around from at, from, from at 7 o'clock. Bill Nelson, one of our pastors on staff, he's also one of our elders, is going to be leading a life group right there in that room. So you can just kind of stick around and uh, join in and do in life with one another. Uh, this next Sunday is Halloween, and that's not typically something that we celebrate here as a church. However, as we talk about being light in the darkness, we recognize that we are called to be that light, and the darker it gets, the, sh- the, the brighter we want to shine. And so on that particular night, traditionally, for like the last 10 years, we've been doing a big trunk or treat out in our parking lot, and what we are we're ultimately doing was pulling you out of your neighborhoods pulling you out of your spheres of influence around your neighbors and the people you're doing life with so that you could come here and put on a function on this property as if this is the box that people have to come to to meet with God. And that's not the case. And so what we are doing this year is we're just encouraging you as the church to be intentional about the way you invest that night. Perhaps it's going over to someone's house and and having a a, a gathering together and doing life together. Maybe it's being really intentional about the way you use your property. It's a dark night. Maybe it's putting lights up and putting something there and, and then offering to take pictures for people in their Halloween costumes for them. Everybody's got a phone. You can just say, hey, give me your phone. I'll take a picture for you. I don't know what it is for you, but I encourage you guys to really creatively begin to pray. How can we make the most of that night that is otherwise a pretty dark night. And then um, make sure you're, you're here with us next Sunday. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. But I'm also looking beyond Halloween to Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. There's some really huge opportunities that we have as a church family to look beyond the walls of our church to, the, to people who are in a lot of need. I'm not going to tell you about that. I'm going to let the person who's been doing this for years do it. So that we're going to watch a video from Bill Nelson. Hello, everyone. This is Bill Nelson of Fresh Beginnings Ministries, and I am so honored to be speaking with you today. I want to share with you about our eighth year of serving families at Thanksgiving who just need a little hand up. Lighthouse Community Church has been such a great support with us from the beginning. And I wanna thank you for helping FBM with over 9,000 meals to families in need for the past eight Thanksgivings. Wow. Yes, it is okay to clap for yourselves for that. Now this year, my dear family, Fresh Beginnings Ministries has been asked to help with 1,100 families for Thanksgiving meals. 
About 80% of these meals will be for veterans and their families. The other 20% will be for families struggling in our own community. This morning after church, there will be flyers in the back of the church that will have a list of food items specifically for Thanksgiving dinner, side dishes in our food boxes. Each food box will contain the ingredients to prepare side dishes such as green bean casserole, yams, mashed potatoes and gravy, cranberry sauce, etc. you know, the things like that. But due to hard times, we're also including all of the extra ingredients we normally distribute in our family food boxes to over a thousand families every month. This adds 20 extra meals for a family of four. If you would like to know what our extra food items are, please go to our website at www.freshbeginningsministries.com and it will also be on the flyer that you can pick up at the back of the church this morning. So here is how you can help. First and foremost, pray, as this is our biggest distribution we have ever done. Second, it takes financing to pay for all of this food. I can tell you that 90% of every dollar you give goes to the families that we serve. All of us at FBM are volunteers, yes, including me. So I ask you to prayerfully consider giving whatever you are able, because every dollar counts. Third, we need volunteers. To volunteer, Gary and Kathy Franks will be in the back of the church to get your email address and send you the link to sign up to volunteer for a specific shift. You will see how there are volunteering shifts for packing boxes, which will be done at our warehouse. Also, there will be shifts for loading cars on distribution days and transportation of frozen turkeys from the store, which is a half a mile away from the church. Feel free to sign up once or 10 times if you like. This year, we will be using our church as the distribution center. That means on Monday, November 22nd, starting at 9 a.m., and Tuesday, November 23rd, starting at 9 a.m., we will have our partner organizations driving through our church parking lot to pick up their pre-ordered boxes to distribute to their families. I love you all for partnering with us to make a difference throughout our community. And may God richly bless you as you continue to walk with his son, Jesus. Have a blessed day. All right. Now, typically, Bill would be here to deliver that in person, uh, but he has been laid up. He actually had a, a cortisone shot into his neck because of a couple of uh, hurt vertebrae from a fall a couple of weeks ago. And that's really hard. I, I'm reminded of kind of the frailty of our bodies, but at the same time, on a year where Fresh Beginnings is being asked to deliver more meals than any other Thanksgiving before, it really feels apropos that God would say, okay, Bill, then I'm going to sideline you so that the rest of my kids can kind of step in and fill that gap so that you can be reminded that this does not all happen upon your shoulders. And so Gary and Kathy, can you guys stand up for just a moment? This, these are Gary, this is Gary and Kathy Franks. They're newer to our church, but they have also dived in and are, are walking alongside with Bill, and specifically, they are going to be at the back today if you want to get a flyer on how you can be involved in this, how you can give support and all that kind of stuff. So just wanted you to see them. With that, I'm going to invite you now to turn with me uh, to John chapter 19. We're going to dive in. We are getting really close, and we have, for this last year, we have been slowly working 
through the Gospel of John. And I'm sure that there are many of you in here who weren't with us when we first began. But for almost a year now, we've been slowly working, walking with John and his disciples as they came face to face with and got to know Jesus, God in human flesh, as they began to wake up to who he was. And all that we have been looking at so far, all of John's gospel has been pointing towards a moment where it all comes together. And that moment is what we're going to be looking at today. It's a moment that for the disciples in the moment felt like abject, you know, loss. It, it, was, it was awful, and they couldn't understand it, and it felt like all of their hopes and dreams lay shattered at their feet, and yet, in hindsight, we begin to recognize the beauty and the victory that was the cross. Last week, we looked at the final kind of interaction that Jesus has with Pontius Pilate, who was Rome's man in Jerusalem, the guy who was tasked with keeping the peace and overseeing this wing of the Roman Empire. And I'm going to back up a little bit just so we can get a running start into the passage that we're going to look at today. So that for those of you who may not have been here with us last week, so that you can kind of get the context of this conversation that we're kind of coming into midstream. So we're going to start in John 19 verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. In other words, he had him beaten with whips, opening up rivulets on his back. And his goal in doing this, by the way, was to try to actually save Jesus' life. You have these Jewish leaders, primarily the head priest who is demanding Jesus' crucifixion. And Pilate doesn't want to do that. So in beating Jesus, he's actually hoping that the Jews will relent. So Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and shoved it onto his head. They clothed him in a purple robe. It was probably one of the Roman centurion's garments, and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. They, they, these Roman guards would play a game where they would hit a bound and blindfolded prisoner and then say, Hey, prophesy who hit you. That's what they were doing to Jesus. And then once more after they'd had their fun, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. And I, and I don't read that as here's the man, like he's the dude. He's more like just saying, here's the guy that you've been making this huge stink about. He's nobody. He said, nothing, look at how weak and frail he looks. Again, hoping that these Jewish, this, this mob will relent, but that's not how things go. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, well, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Again, the Jewish leaders realized their gambit of suggesting that Jesus was a rival to Caesar's throne isn't swaying Pilate to, to order his execution. So now they finally show their cards and share the reason for which they think that Jesus deserves death. Verse 7, the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Remember, Pilate is a, a superstitious man. 
He was raised within a Roman world that suggested that there wasn't just one God, but a pantheon of gods. And these gods would often, according to Roman and Greek mythology, sire children amongst human beings. So now Pilate's feeling a little bit more nervous about Jesus. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace and he asked, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. This would be Jesus' opportunity, by the way, to argue his way out of this and to basically ensure that Pilate would not order his execution. But Jesus remained silent. Verse 10, Pilate responded, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? I hold your life in my hands. But Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed, you, handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And, and just to point out, Jesus is not pointing to all Jews throughout all history, as some have suggested. Jesus is pointing very specifically at the high priest, Caiaphas, and his father-in-law, Annas, who was the power broker, the godfather of Jerusalem. He's pointing at those two specifically because they are the ones who are forcing Pilate's hand. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic, is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was around noon. He said, here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Should I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. That's what we looked at last week. Let's continue. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, and he probably just had the crossbar because that cross was heavy. They tied the crossbar to his shoulders, and he had to stumble along the Via Dolorosa through the heart of Jerusalem out to the Skull Hill, the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, or in Latin, it's known as Calvary. And there they crucified him along with two others, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. And the two men on either side were, were rebels, thieves, men deserving of death. Jesus was not. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, the three primary languages of that region of the world of that time. So anybody could pretty much read this sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And many of, I'm sorry, the, verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, saying, don't write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. This is Pilate's petty way of, of getting back at the Jewish leaders just a little bit. They'd forced his hand, basically said, if you refuse to crucify this so-called 
a pretender to the throne, then you're no friend of Caesar's. And so Pilate was forced into ordering his execution. So as kind of a petty way of getting back, he writes, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, on the titulum, which is the, the, the board that would go above somebody who was being crucified's head, letting everybody who passed by know the reason for which they were being killed. So what is Jesus guilty of? For being the king of the Jews. And although this was probably his own little petty way of poking at the Jewish leaders and reminding them, hey, listen, you don't own me, it was also unintentionally, perhaps, the way that Pilate declared to the whole region who Jesus really was. So Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. In other words, Jesus owned all of five things. They each took one of them, and then they rolled dice for the last seamless woven piece. They said, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who gets it. And this happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garments. So that is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. So in other words, you've got four women, three of them are named Mary. It's a very common name back then. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And then from that time on, this disciple took her into her home, into his home. A couple of things here. Throughout all four of the Gospels, we tend to hear about the men who surrounded Jesus, the men who walked with him, the men who were close to him, his 12 disciples, his inner three. But at his death, there was only one of his disciples there, John, although he humbly refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, right? Very humble. Then you've got a band of women who have also been walking with Jesus, who have also been supporting Jesus, who have loved him throughout his life, throughout his public ministry, and love him to the very end. They are the ones that are there. And part of that is probably because the men were afraid that if they were there in person, they might be arrested and executed themselves. But the ladies are there, supporting trying to lend strength, reminding Jesus he is not alone in his time of, of trial. And I just want to zero in on this interaction that Jesus has with his mom, Mary, and with John, the one who is, is really the only of the disciples to be an eyewitness to his execution. Remember that Jesus was not an only child, or I should say that Mary had other children after Jesus. He was the only one, though, that was born by the, the empowerment, the, the Spirit of God. But he had other brothers. And yet they had rejected Jesus and abandoned him. And Jesus, being the oldest son, recognizes that he is not going to be able to care for his mom. His dad has been dead for a number of years. We don't know at what point Joseph passed away, but it was long before Jesus' public ministry began. And so it falls to Jesus to be responsible for his mom. 
And when he looks out, he doesn't see any of his brothers there, but he sees his mom, whom he feels a responsibility for, and he sees John, who even in this time endangers his life to be there to support him. He points to his most trusted disciple and he says, you take care of her now. She's your mom. And mom, he's going to be your son. He'll do what I can't do for you. And I, for me, it just reminds me of the way that Jesus loved in any and every moment. I mean, because when I'm suffering, and I, you, we cannot begin to imagine the suffering that Jesus was enduring with nails piercing his hands and through his feet, and every breath a laborious needing to push himself up on his nail-scarred feet and hold himself up with his nail-scarred wrists just to get a breath, even in his moment of excruciating suffering, he's still thinking about other people. That's the kind of Savior we have. That's the kind of Lord that we follow. Later, this is verse 28, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. In truth, being crucified was something that sapped your power and, and he would have been sweating profusely having to work so hard for every breath. And so dehydration was a very real aspect and as you were working for those breaths, and as you began to get dehydrated, the blood began to get thicker and thicker, and it was harder for the heart to pump it through the body. And so he says, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath, a Sabbath that coincided with the Passover feast. And because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The reason for this is that if you are basically getting every breath by pushing yourself up to kind of open your chest and then you fall back down. If you break their legs, they can't push themselves up and they suffocate, which is the primary way that people died from crucifixion. It was the absolute worst way for somebody to die, developed by a country and perfected by a country who was excellent at executing people. And it was a form of death that was reserved primarily for the worst of the worst, those who rebelled against Rome, those who were just the dregs of society. So the fact that Jesus was surrounded by guys who deserved it just makes it even worse. It was a mark of shame. So they went to the first soldier, I'm sorry, they went to the first man and they broke his legs so that he would suffocate quicker. And then they broke the other one, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers took his spear and he pierced Jesus into his chest cavity and up into his heart. He did this for a reason. He, made, he was making sure that Jesus 
was good and truly dead before they took his body off the cross. And when they pierced his heart, it wasn't just blood that came out. If just blood came out, it would mean that he was still possibly living or he had just died. But when they pierced his heart, blood and water came out. Now, there's a reason for this. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, laboriously working for every single breath, the lining around the heart began to fill up. It's called the pericardial sac. And it began to fill up with fluid. And that fluid put even more pressure on his heart to the point where it could no longer even continue to pump that really thick blood that was carrying less and less oxygen through his body. And so, some doctors who have looked at this account basically tell us that Jesus died of a broken heart. His heart could no longer pump the blood. It's known as broken heart syndrome. And that is what Jesus ultimately died of. Not suffocation, but it died of a broken heart. And the blood and the water coming out are the telltale sign of that. Verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Here's John pointing to himself and saying, the, the, the eyewitness to this is telling you the truth. This is what I saw with my own eyes. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of the bones would be broken. Referencing Exodus chapter 12, Numbers chapter 9, Psalm verse 34. An interesting detail that we're not going to really dive into is that when you sacrifice a Passover lamb, you could not break any of its bones. Jesus was the Passover lamb, the one whose body paid for us so that the wrath of God would pass over us. So Jesus, this, with all of these things happen so that Scripture would be fulfilled, that not one of his bones would be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but he secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, when Pilate, with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus. Now, we've met Nicodemus earlier in John's gospel, haven't we? Nicodemus was the one, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at nighttime, one of the Sanhedrin who wanted to know who Jesus was and wanted to ask a bunch of questions, but he did so under the cover of night because he was afraid that the Jewish leaders wouldn't approve of him rubbing shoulders with him. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes that weighed about 75 pounds, and those myrrh and aloes were used to coat the body as they began to wrap him in the burial cloth so that he would ultimately go in kind of covered up with 75 pounds of wrapping and spices and whatnot, and it creates a body cocoon that would preserve his body as it began the slow disintegration process. This is what they anticipated. It was also a way of honoring him. And this was, in, this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they took his body and they laid it in that tomb. 
and they rolled the big stone in front of it. And thus was the life of Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, extinguished. John um, gives us a lot of interesting detail in his gospel, doesn't he? He gives us a lot of details that really at first glance, for those of us reading it here in the 21st century, would, would consider it to be kind of unnecessary detail. Things like them whipping Jesus' body before he was brought out with the crown of thorns on his head and being forced to carry his cross to Golgotha and the, the soldiers rolling dice for his underwear or the fact that he was thirsty and so they had to give him a little bit of a you know, sour wine on a sponge or the fact that it was a rich man who took Jesus down and placed him in his tomb. All of these details seem totally you know, superfluous to the story. Jesus died, Rome and the Jewish leaders win, end of story, at least so it seems. However, for John, he is constantly throughout his gospel pointing at those little details and saying these details matter because these details were foretold hundreds of years before this. And he's constantly pointing back to Old Testament. For them, it was the Jewish scriptures. That's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament. So for them, they were constantly pointing back to the Jewish scriptures and saying, this is as the scriptures foretold. And for me, what it reminds me of is that the crucifixion of Jesus was not an accident. It wasn't as if Jesus was trying to become the king and depose Caesar and make Israel great again, it was that Jesus had come into this world to ultimately go to the cross. This was always God's plan A. And taken from this perspective, I look at the cross, kind of like how, you ever been to a pond that's really, really placid, and you throw a rock out into the middle of the pond, and it kind of you have that impact point, and then the ripples begin to emanate out from it in every single direction until the entire pond is disturbed by the impact. If all of history, from the beginning to the very end, is that pond, it's the cross that is the impact of that stone. All of history is shaped at least from the Bible's perspective, at least from a spiritual standpoint, all of history is shaped by the impact of the cross. Everything else is, is affected by it. And God, who sees the end from the beginning, knew it was coming. And so all throughout the Jewish Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, we catch glimpses after glimpse, after glimpse, foreshadowing of that impact point. And even for us, 2,000 years later, the ripples are still affecting us. What I want to do for a moment is I want to just give you three snapshots, three tastes of some of the ripples that were going throughout the Old Testament, many of which John himself identifies as he's going through his telling 
of Jesus' crucifixion. I just want us to get a taste of how this was always God's plan A. So, for instance, Zechariah. Can we throw that up there? This is Zechariah chapter 12. The prophet Zechariah, by the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, writes, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Next slide. He concludes that thought with this. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. This was written 500 years before Jesus was executed on a Roman cross. Long before crucifixion was ever invented, let alone Rome was established as a nation. Or turn with me because we're going to spend a little bit more time in these next two passages. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah was a prophet that lived some 700 years before Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. And in the, the chapters that we are going to be looking at, in particular we're going to look at chapter 53, but in the chapters prior to it, Isaiah begins to prophesy about one whom God would send to redeem his people, but he would not redeem his people as a conquering king, but as a sacrificial servant. So we're just going to read a portion of this. Isaiah 53, let's begin in verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was a man despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. But surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, or some of your translations might use, by his stripes, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity or the sin of all of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Pilate saying to Jesus, are you not going to talk to me? Don't you know I hold your life in my hands? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he has done no violence nor any deceit on his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him 
and to cause him to suffer. Yes, Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests, might have demanded his crucifixion, but it was God who had allowed it because it was this way in which God had always planned to redeem his people. So it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, this is not a suggestion that Jesus had children, and then the Da Vinci Code was written. This is a reminder that because of what he did, we, the children of God, can become children of God. We are his offspring. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for us transgressors. This was written 700 years before Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. And I will remind you, long before Rome was ever a nation, and long before that Roman nation ever perfected the art of crucifixion. One last place I want us to go, Psalm 22. So take a left. It's right there in the middle of your Bible. Now, many of you are very, very familiar with Psalm 23, right? It's one of the most popular chapters in all of Scripture. Our kids who go to the preschool memorize it by the time they leave. My boys still know it by heart. But for, for those who read the New Testament, it is actually Psalm 22 that is the most popular psalm. It is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. I think you're going to find out why as we read through this. This was written 1,000 years before Jesus hung on a cross. It was written by King David. I'm sure King David thought he was talking about himself. But as he was led by the Holy Spirit, what he wrote sounds as if it was written by an eyewitness to the crucifixion. It begins with these words that you might recognize. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. And all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted 
within me. My tongue, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All of my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all of the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. This psalm, written a thousand years before Jesus was born and was crucified and was killed, that psalm was written in Hebrew. Later on, when that same psalm was translated into Greek so that Greek-speaking people of the Greek-speaking world could understand it in their own language, a single word was used for that very last statement, he has done it. And that word is tetelestai. And it is a word that was on Jesus' lips as he hung on the cross. It is the final word that Jesus used. It is finished. Same word, tetelestai. Can you see the parallels for John as he watches his Lord be crucified? These are just a few of hundreds of, Literally hundreds of references throughout the Old Testament that point to Jesus' crucifixion that foreshadowed it. This was never, ever an accident. This was always God's plan A. John recognizes it. So this was the reverberations, those reverberations throughout the Old Testament that were pointing towards what Jesus was going to do on a cross, on Calvary Hill, Skull Hill, 
2,000 years ago, but those reverberations from the, the rock hitting the pond continue to emanate into our own world, continue to emanate into our own life here in the 21st century, here in Southern California. Who we are and our standing with God is impacted by what Jesus did on the cross. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, our sin doesn't get the last word. And we use, here in the church, we use sin a lot, right? It's a word that we're all pretty familiar with. It's one of those words that just is kind of thrown around. We seldom stop to consider what that word actually means. It's a word that was borrowed from archery. In archery, you're always aiming at the little yellow bullseye. That is what you're aiming at. And any time that you shoot and it deviates even slightly from the bullseye, that is called a sin. So, what is sin? It is missing the mark that you are aiming at. It is missing the bullseye. And we think that we are just simply competing against other people, right? It might be easy for us to say, well, you know, I haven't sinned. Not really. Not compared to other people. Look at how sinful they are, as if they are the ones who determine the mark, but they are not the ones that we are judged against. The standard by which we are judged is the standard of our righteous God and, and His Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm sorry, but according to that standard, we have all sinned and fallen woefully short of the mark. And as Paul will say in, in his letter to the Romans, the wages of sin is what? Is death. And, and here he's not just talking about physical death. Here he's talking about a spiritual death, a separation from God. What our sins have earned for us is a spiritual, eternal separation from God. That is what we deserve. And before you say, not me, doesn't, doesn't kind of describe me, let me just ask you a few questions to see if maybe you can identify with this, all right? Have you ever bent the truth, even slightly? I might do that from time to time. Have you ever coveted something that is not yours? Anybody with a social media account, you do it every day. Have you ever harbored anger towards somebody in your hearts? No, not at all. Have you ever spoken negatively about somebody behind their backs? Have you ever looked at a person lustfully? Have you ever looked at a person judgmentally? Have you ever done something you knew, you knew that you shouldn't do? Or have you ever not done something that you knew you should do? Should I continue? <laughs> you get the point. All of us have sinned. All of us have missed the bullseye. All of us deserve eternal separation from God. When a person was arrested by the Roman government, they were, the, the, the arresters would write the list of their charges on a, a sign, a titulus, that was then hung up above their cell to let the people who walked by the cell know why they were imprisoned. Or, when that person was hung on the cross, as in the case of Jesus, their list of sins that deserved death was hung above them. So, Jesus's charges were Jesus of Nazareth, 
king of the Jews. That's why he deserved death, because he claimed to be a king, and he was a rival to, to Caesar, and there can be no rivals to Caesar. And I would suspect that each of us has our own list that we could write. And so when you came in this morning, you were given, in your bulletin, you were given a card. I want to invite you to pull that out right now. And if you do not have one, maybe you dropped it or you didn't get a bulletin, raise your hand and Charlie's going to come by and give you one. We want to make sure that everybody has one of these. Go ahead and pull it out. What we are going to do is we are going to, and by the way, for you at home, maybe just grab a piece of paper. I want you to participate just because you're watching doesn't mean that you don't have to do the homework. There will be a test on this later. So take your card. And yes, I'm well aware of the fact that this is not actually three by five, whatever. It'll, I'll put it on my card. Lying. I want you to take just a couple of minutes and I want you to write down if you were standing before the judge's seat and they began to list the ways in which you have missed the mark. Just begin making a list of those and you don't need to put your name on it. You know who you are. But just go ahead and start making a list. Let's take a few minutes and do that right now. Yeah, me too. I need a bigger piece of paper too. Let's take one more minute, and no, you don't need to copy off your friend's paper.
So if you're anything like Darlene or myself, you needed a, a, a bigger card, and I'm sorry, we've probably got more in the back, but this will suffice. So when a person was arrested by Rome, they had a certificate of debt that was written out. These were the, the charges against the individual for which they were imprisoned, punished, sometimes even sent to the cross. And when that person paid the penalty for their crimes, maybe it was serving out their sentence, or maybe it was their estate was sold, and so then all of that money went to kind of pay the penalty, they were released, a single word was written across that certificate of indebtedness. You want to guess what that word was? To tell us die, which we know Jesus used for it is finished, but it also meant paid in full. It is finished, paid in full. That was the word that was written across a person's certificate of indebtedness when they were finally able to open up the prison doors and walk free. It has been paid in full. It is finished. Is it any wonder that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, suffering, bleeding out for us, in his last breath, as he has pulled his body up to get just enough air to utter one more thing, to tell us die, it is finished. And he was not suggesting, I am finished. He was suggesting that what he had been sent from the Father to do was finished. The work he had been given to do was finished. The penalty that you and I have racked up throughout our lives for our disobedience, for our bending of the truth, for our harboring bitterness and anger in our heart, for all of the little and huge ways that we have missed the mark, he willingly went to the cross and he willingly took all of that upon himself. And when he cried to tell us die, what he was talking about was the things that you have written on your card. The blood debt. These are the things, and I know that there could be a lot more that we could add to these lists. These are the things that have separated us from our relationship with the Father. We were created in His image to do life with Him, to co-labor with Him, to radiate His values into this world so that this world would be more Edenic, would be like it was in the garden where we could be with Him and co-labor with Him. We had identity and we had purpose and it was good because we had Him. But sin severed that. And we earned for us, ourselves, death. But God, who is a just God and cannot simply turn a blind eye to our disobedience, God is also an incredibly loving Father. And any of you who are parents, you know how much you love your kids even when they screw up. And our Father God is an even better loving Father than that. 
because I am a fallible human being who's pretty selfish from time to time, all the times of times. And our Father loved us so much that he wasn't willing to simply let our sin be the last word. And so he sent Jesus, his only begotten Son, into this world to take on human flesh and to journey to the cross so that he could pay the penalty of our sins, so that we could be restored back into relationship with the Father. And I love the way that Paul puts this in Colossians chapter 2. Can we throw this up on the screen? Yes, no, maybe so. Colossians chapter 2 says this. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Let's continue. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The implement of torturous death that people would look at a a human body hanging on that and go, man, that guy's cursed. That guy screwed up royally. And that guy got kind of crushed by the boot heel of Rome. Jesus has this uncanny ability to take things that the world considers evil and using them for good. Can we throw that last verse that we just read up there on the screen for a moment? Having disarmed the powers and authorities, even Pilate had no power to stand against God's plans. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What we consider to be a torture implement, what what Jesus' disciples would have looked at as an evil, awful torture implement, has become the symbol of our freedom, has become a beautiful symbol that we decorate our churches and our homes and our own bodies with because Jesus triumphed over them. I'm not even going to get into right now the Roman triumph where you would literally parade through the cities in Rome when you were a victorious general. That was called a triumph. Jesus triumphed over our sins, triumphed over our enemy, triumphed over the things that separated us by the cross. And what the enemy thought was his greatest victory was his greatest defeat. And he took those certificates of indebtedness that each of us have racked up and he dealt with them once and for all. This is finished. It's been paid in full, and he has done it. So this morning, as we go into a time of response, I'm going to invite you to respond tangibly. Because many of us hold on to these lists, and many of us go through life almost holding ourselves back from God because we think that we need to somehow make up for these things before we can really be used by him or really kind of be restored back into relationship. Guys, it's finished. It's already been paid in full. He's already done it, so you don't have to do it. And for each of us, 
who calls Jesus Lord, this morning I'm going to invite you to lay down your lists as a declaration of trust that he has done it and that it is finished and that your sins have been paid in full and you no longer need to carry the burden of those things. And we're going to do it in a tangible way. Up here at the front, I've got two crosses. There at the back, I've got a cross. Next to those crosses, I've got nails and hammers. This morning, we are literally going to nail our sins to the cross. If you would feel more comfortable, you can fold it in half before you do so. I, I can promise you we will not read them and, and then try to match names with handwriting. <laughs> but if you'd feel more comfortable, please feel free to, to fold them in half. Come up, grab a nail, grab a hammer, put the nail over your sins and hammer it in. You can say, it is finished, paid in full. He has done it. However you want to do it, it is a declaration of trust. And then once you've done that, tangibly reminding yourself that this is not your burden to carry any longer. I'm going to invite you to come up and grab the communion elements. I've got them up here. We've also got them in the back. Hold on to your communion elements because when we're finished doing this, we are going to take communion together as a reminder that we're family in Him because of what He has done, not because of what we have done. So now let's respond.
Son of God died for us. This is love. This is love. He walked the hill. He bore the cross. This is love. This is. thought that the sound of hammers on a weekend would be blessed, huh? He has a way of taking things that we would think are awful and making them beautiful. He has a way of taking things that don't seem like they mean a lot and repurposing them, repackaging them. And that's what he did with these communion elements on the night that he was arrested less than 24 hours before he hung on the cross for us, Jesus, with his last meal with his disciples, took a piece of bread and he said, this bread symbolizes my body that I am giving for you. And every time you eat the bread, just remember how much I love you. So for those of us who have not yet taken it, let us now take our communion together. And then 
he took a cup. One of the many cups that you would have shared during a Passover meal, he took a cup and he pointed to it and he said, this cup symbolizes the new covenant that I am establishing with my blood. It is not a covenant of you trying to earn your standing through your obedience to laws. It is a covenant of grace paid for, bought and paid for with my blood. And every time you take it, remember to tell us, it is finished. It has been paid in full. And I have done it. So now let's take this cup together. And let's respond now as a family, as a unified family, unified through our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's respond to our Father who loves us so much that He wouldn't allow our sins to get in the way of getting to do life with Him eternally. Let's respond together. So just take it in.
That is our prayer, that we release the things that we have been holding on to and finding our identity in, or perhaps it's the things that have been getting in our way that we're trying to make up for, and instead embrace Jesus, our brother, who has paid it all so that we could be restored back into relationship with God, back to the identity that we were born to live out of as sons and daughters of the living God and born. He has died to restore us back to the purpose for which we were created, to represent the heart of our Father in this sin-warped world. That's the beauty of the cross, is it doesn't just free us from something, it frees us to something. We get to now go be heralds of the good news. We're not here 
just so we can kind of check the box of done my church this week, now I can go back to my regularly scheduled life and watch football. As you watch football, there may be people around you that need to be reminded that their life is not determined by the outcome of a game, Jeff. It's okay that the Dodgers lost, Jeff. We're living for something far greater than that. I want to remind you that at the back, Gary and Kathy are going to be having these sheets of paper in case you would like to get involved in caring for some people this Thanksgiving. I encourage you to grab one of those sheets and prayerfully consider how you might participate in that. If you want to let us know of something, maybe it's a prayer request that you're carrying. Maybe you want to get into a life group. There's connection cards in the seat back in front of you. I'd encourage you to fill that out. If you have a question for us or if you have a prayer request that we can carry for you or with you, I encourage you to fill that out. You can drop them in the white bucket. There's boxes at the back of the room. If you have a tithe or an offering, you can drop that there. If you're at home and perhaps you would like to get this sheet on how you can get involved with Fresh Beginnings, just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. We'll email you this. If you want to let us know of a prayer request, we would love to pray with you. But now, would you just extend your hands? I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over us. Slaves who have been freed because of a sacrifice of our big brother. We've been freed from the penalty of our sins and restored back into our identity as sons and daughters and restored back to our purpose as his ambassadors. So Jesus, you are enough. We find our identities, we find our purpose, and we find our peace in you, the Prince of Peace the one who paid it all so that we can say with confidence it is finished because he has done it and paid it in full may we be people who echo that this week as we interact with others who are carrying heavy burdens would you Holy Spirit prompt us to be ambassadors of this good news our standing with our Father is not determined by our own efforts. It is finished. Now let's go and be the church who carries that good news to those who desperately need to hear it. Have a wonderful week. I hope to break bread with you again on Wednesday night at dinner. Have a great week.